Well, good morning, 11 o'clock. How y'all doing today? Doing good? Oh, good. I like it. I like it. Well, my name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church. I am so glad that you are here. Uh, today we are going to be talking about, you're going to meet one of the most famous people uh, in the Bible. We're going to be diving into the life of David over the next couple weeks. And I'm so excited. I hope you stick around for this whole teaching series because I've been waiting to do this for a while. There's so much to cover. We're not going to be able to get into all of it. But I did want to let you know before I get into the message about a fantastic resource, a book I read probably 15, 20 years ago uh, by Gene Edwards called A Tale of Three Kings. A Tale of Three Kings. Uh, we actually have it out in our resource center. It is a study on the life of Saul and David and Solomon, and it looks at how we live life uh, with God when our circumstances aren't what we would choose. How do we become the leaders God wants us to be? How do we live under leaders that we wouldn't choose for ourselves? A fantastic and creative, beautiful resource on the life of David. So if you want to dive deeper than we can cover in the next couple of weeks, check this out in the resource center uh, right afterwards. Uh, today, to kick off this uh, look in the life of David. We're going to start in this um, unique part of his story that we don't talk about enough. If you're familiar with the life of David, you may not even know this part of his story, but I've been so excited to start here because I think all of us uh, have a way to connect to his story and to learn something from God today. But to kick off the message, what I wanted to do was something I don't think I've ever done before. I don't know. I can't remember a time where I've ever done this. I'm going to read a poem. I've never read a poem. I love poetry. I've never read a poem on stage before to y'all. Uh, and so I found this when I was in college. I came across this when I was in college, and it really sums up uh, the intensity of the chapter of David's life that we're going to be looking at today. Um, and so this, I don't know who the author is, obscure author poem, but I'm glad I was able to track it down. And I want to read it to you today. This is what it says. Uh, so no one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke. <laughs> You're broke. Your love life's DOA. It's like you're always stuck in second gear when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month. Oh, you've heard this one before. Oh, I thought this was an obscure poem that I came across. All right, does anyone know what that's from? Friends. Obviously from Friends. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Uh, that is one of the most depressing opening songs to a TV show ever. The first couple lines are, your life stinks. It's the worst. Everything's falling apart. You don't have a love life. You don't have a job. You don't have anything. Uh, but don't worry. I'll be there for you. I'm not going to fix it for you. I'm just going to watch while your life slowly falls apart around you. And really what we're going to be looking at today in the life of David is a moment in his life where it really kind of was like that. His life was at a low point. And I know all of us can relate and have moments in our own story uh, where we really felt like we were up against the wall. We felt like we were in a cave. We felt like life was sort of falling apart around us or working against us, like, like the universe conspired and got together and sent a planet-wide email to everyone and said, it's their turn today. And, and it just seemed like everything was working against you from your job or from friends or family or relationships, your marriage, your kids. It just felt like no matter what you did, it, what, you weren't doing it right or things were actually working against you. My hunch is you've probably been in that space before, haven't you? We all have. And in fact, maybe that's exactly where you're at today. I mean, maybe that's like the reason you came to church today is because it just feels like life is against you and you're up against the ropes and you don't know what to do next or where to go next. And there's a fundamental spiritual question that I believe can only be asked from the bottom. 
A question that you can only ask when you find yourself in one of those seasons where it just feels like everything is working against you. And, and the question is, maybe it's one you've wrestled with as well, how do you know God is for you when life feels like it's against you? How can you know that God is actually for you when it feels like all of life is actually against you? This is a big question. And in fact, it's a question that David himself asks, because we're going to look at this chapter in his life, that it's one that each of us, I believe, has to wrestle with. And my hope is that today you will actually find not just an answer to that question, but hope for that longing. And so if you would, I want you to grab a Bible and actually turn to uh, 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. So if you brought a Bible with you, fantastic. If you got it on your phone, great. If not, do you see the brand new Soul City Bibles that are right under your seat? Go ahead and grab one of those and you can actually uh, open that up and turn to page 229. Page 229 in the Soul City Bible will get you to 1 Samuel 18. Now, I'm going to give you, while you're turning there, a good bit of context. I want you to know where this part of the life of David falls in the whole big story of the Bible, okay? So David comes after Moses, comes after the God miraculously delivering his people out of Egypt and then leading them, lovingly leading them all the way into the promised land after God had kept all of his promises to them. And so this is after all of that. And it, after God had delivered his people into the promised land, uh, they looked around and they saw a theme with all the other kingdoms and empires. They saw something in themselves that they weren't satisfied with. They saw that everyone else had a king and they didn't have a king. Sure, they had God, but that wasn't enough. And all they could see was what everyone else had and all they wanted was what everyone else had. And it's just like us, isn't it? No different. So they ask God, God, give us a king, give us a king. Please, please, please give us a king. And so he does. God actually gives them King Saul, and King Saul was a good king. King Saul was a good king for a while. He established a nation out of nothing, formed a whole nation, built an army out of thin air, built a kingdom. That is no small, like, I don't know what you have in your to-do list for this week. That's no small thing to do. It takes a good king to be able to do that. But like all kings, even good kings, he had an expiration date. He had an expiration date to his leadership, to his authority. And over time, he began to forget where his authority, where his power, where his anointing actually came from. And it wasn't until he was face-to-face -face with one of their greatest foes, the Philistines. And the Philistines actually had uh, one of their heroes, their nation's hero, was a literal giant, like a nine-foot-tall, actual, literal, bigger-than-Andre the Giant, giant named Goliath. You've probably heard this story before. Goliath was a person that stood in opposition to Israel and every day would come out to the front lines and taunt King Saul by name, taunt the people of Israel and say, all right, who's going to defeat me? You send one person to defeat me. And if you can defeat me, our whole will surrender to you. But no one was brave enough to face Goliath. And because of Saul's arrogance, because of Saul's disobedience and his turning his heart from God, God began to work on a plan B behind the scenes. God was going to establish a new king over Israel. So God sent Samuel, the high priest who had once anointed Saul to be king, out to find the next king of Israel. And what he finds is in the most unexpected place, the most unsuspecting person, he finds this teenage shepherd boy, the youngest of all his brothers, 
And God says to Samuel, that's the one. That's the person after my own heart. This is not who you would typically choose for a king. But Samuel listens to God and anoints David and says that something special of purpose is going to happen in his life. But it didn't happen right away. And sometimes that's how the promises of God work. God speaks a word, a promise over your life, and it's many, many, many years until you see it to completion. doesn't mean he's not faithful. It just means he works on his own timetable. So what happens is David is running supplies up to his brothers, all of whom are soldiers, fighting the front lines against the Philistines. He sees Goliath come out in the morning and taunt the people of Israel. And David's there, what, 15, 16 years old? He's seeing Goliath taunt, and he's looking around at all these scared soldiers, and he's literally going, seriously? Is anyone going to do anything about this? How long has this been going on? He says, don't worry, I got it. And so he grabs his slingshot, the same little slingshot that he used to fight off wolves and bears while he was protecting his flock. Now he goes out to protect the people of Israel. And with his little slingshot, if you know the story, he kills Goliath, ends his tyranny. The Philistines flee. The Israelites are victorious. And in one afternoon, David becomes a national hero. The only person to do what no one else in the country could do. He defeated Goliath. And so people are raising him up on their shoulders and cheering him on. And King Saul liked this one because David had secured a victory over the Philistines. And he liked that there were people who actually had something to cheer about again in his kingdom. He was pleased, but only for a bit. All right, so now let's jump in. 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. Let's look at where this story picks up. It says this, whatever mission Saul sent him, David, on, whatever mission Saul sent David on, David was what? David was... So successful, all right? Emphasis on so. David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So all those who'd sworn kind of allegiance to Saul were now looking at David going, how about this guy? I like this guy. I mean, he gets results. I mean, you see what he did with Goliath? He's leading us into victory everywhere we go. God's favor is clearly on this person. How about David? And so David is having success upon success, favor upon favor. Everybody loves David. Verse six, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. This is, uh, this is how Jeannie actually greets me when I come home from work uh, every day. So if it's hard for you to get a picture, I can tell you about it uh, later, but they came out to celebrate. Basically, it's a parade. Every town they would walk through, they would come out and sing and celebrate and dance the victory that God had allowed the Israelites through David's bravery and courage. But look at what happens next. Verse 7, as they danced and sang, this is what they sang. Saul has slain his what? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So here's what we have. Saul has, you know, thousands. Oh, good job, King Saul. I mean, really a thousand's a lot, but David, David has slain tens of thousands. Listen, you may not realize it or not, this is actually the first ever recorded diss track in the world. I mean, I'm not kidding. All of David's guys are like, oh, like when they hear this song happening. This is like some BC, Tupac, and Biggie stuff right here in the Bible. Like Saul, okay, but David, oh, like it's, it's no joke. And it can be fun for a while, and the song sounds kind of nice, but then the song started to get into Saul's head, and he began to pay attention to the lyrics, and he began to have some thoughts. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. He did not like this refrain. This refrain, this song displeased him greatly. Now look what he starts saying to himself. 
They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What, what more can he get but the kingdom? See, Saul is starting to see the writing on the wall, that there is a favor and anointing on David that was once on him. And he recognizes it, but he's lost it over his own life. Look what he says in verse 9. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. You ever have someone like that in your life? For whatever reason, you crossed their wires, you did something they didn't like, and so you felt that eye on you, felt like everything you do at work, they were watching you, someone who was out to get you. Well, imagine if it was the king of Israel who had their eye on you, who was watching you and everything that you did. See, right here in this moment, what we see in the story of David, but really it's, it's happening with Saul, is that the seeds of jealousy and insecurity were beginning to bear a bitter fruit in Saul's soul. Seeds of jealousy and envy were beginning to grow, but it's a bitter fruit that they grow. And this kind of jealousy and envy, is, it's like a tale as old as time, but it very rarely ever leads to any sort of happily ever after. It almost always does us in one way or another, because what we see in Saul is a sort of amnesia that we all suffer, where we forget the goodness of God and we become obsessed with the blessings of others. And this is where jealousy grows. This is where jealousy grows. Jealousy grows when gratitude dies. When gratitude actually dies in your heart, that's when jealousy begins to grow its bitter fruit in you. The second you forget what God has done for you, all the ways he's blessed you, while it may not look like everyone else around you, the second you stop remembering and celebrating God's goodness and gratitude to him, jealousy begins to grow in that soil. Envy begins to grow in that soil. And that's what we see happening here in Saul. But look, we don't have to like look back to the Old Testament to see this. We see it in our own lives every day. Jealousy like this can grow. It can happen when you are yet again another bridesmaid in a wedding that's not your own. And you wonder, while you're celebrating, you smile for the picture. When's it going to be my day? Jealousy can grow in you, can happen in any one of us. When your friend, you kind of came up together, maybe you went to school together, and they land an unbelievable job that pays significantly more than you. And you don't know what they did to deserve it. Y'all came up from the same place. And all of a sudden now, they have what you want. And you're struggling, scraping just to get by and build your career. That fruit can begin to grow in you as parents when you look online and you see all your friends on social media who are perfect parents and provide perfect moments for all their kids at every opportunity. And it's somehow always written in beautiful handwriting on a chalkboard <laughs> that they have. You don't even have a chalkboard in your house. And for some reason, you noticed yesterday, they made a sign for Veterans Day. You didn't even know that was a thing you were supposed to celebrate with your kids. And there it is. And you're reminded, wow, they must be a better parent than I am. I mean, you start to look at your kids differently because you see how perfectly they parent theirs. It can happen when uh, your friend's books make it onto the New York Times bestsellers list and yours don't. And you celebrate their victory, but you wonder what's wrong with you. You see how quick 
jealousy grows. It happens the second gratitude dies. And as we're journeying with David, this most famous character in the Old Testament, as we're walking with him over the next couple of weeks, it's easy at times for us to think of ourselves and to find ourselves, and rightly so, in the life of David, but I think we have more in common with Saul than we ever would care to admit. That the same jealousy and envy flows through our veins as well. That in fact, it's in the very marrow of the bones that hold us together. That we too suffer this kind of madness of jealousy and envy. The spirit of God, which had blessed Saul, was clearly now blessing David. But God had lessons to teach David that only Saul and a cave could teach him. Saul grew mad with jealousy, literally mad, like crazy mad, and attempted to kill David multiple times, publicly would try and kill David. In fact, even formed a campaign. He became so jealous of David that his only goal was to wipe David out. And so he put David on the run, basically. David went from being a national hero to Israel's most wanted. And Saul dedicated portions of his armies to chasing and hunting David down to end him, to kill him. And this went on for months and months and months. David actually grabbed a few of his loyal friends and soldiers and they made it for the lowlands. They ran for his life to the lowlands, to the caves to hide. And for months and months and months, David would go from cave to cave, hiding the hunting armies of Saul out to get him. In fact, all told over the course of this whole section we're looking at, David spent, as best we can understand, about eight years of his life running from King Saul. How many times sitting in the back of a cave did he wonder, wait, remember when that guy came and anointed me and said I would be king one day? Is this how my story is going to end? God, it seems, what did I do to deserve this? God, remember when I defeated Goliath? God, remember when I, I mean, literally tens of thousands, God, I've slain, I've become a national hero and why am I having to run for my life? God, why do you have me here in this cave? David, as you can imagine, as you and I would, was at his lowest. And he was just about out of hope until one fateful night, running from cave to cave, hiding from King Saul, he had a very unique opportunity. And I want you to jump to page 234 in the Soul City Bibles. It's actually uh, 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24. And this is a really interesting moment. So David's literally running for his life from cave to cave. He's got a handful of soldiers with him against an army of King Saul's dedicated to killing David. It says this, that Saul was on the hunt looking for David and he came to the sheep pens along the way and there was a cave where he was. There was a cave there. And so Saul went into, how does the Bible put it? Uh, relieve himself. So Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. And David and his men were actually there in the far back of the cave. So think about this moment. David's been running and running, always staying a couple steps ahead of Saul and his armies. But of all the caves and all the lowlands, Saul happens to choose this one in this moment, turning David's safe house into an outhouse right there in that moment. 
Verse four says this, the men said, David's men who were huddled with him back in the back of the cave, they saw King Saul, they thought, oh my gosh, this is our moment. They said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you that I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Remember, God told you he would deliver you from Saul. So then what David did was he got hyped up by what his soldiers were obviously whispering, saying, and so he snuck up behind Saul and crept up unnoticed and cut a corner of Saul's robe. An interesting choice that David makes here. This was a test for David. But it was also a taunt to King Saul. Saul was clearly in a vulnerable position, we would say. There he was, just kind of minding his own business, playing Angry Birds on his mobile scroll, and (laughs) David sneaks up behind him and could have ended it all. Could have ended all of his problems right there could have ended Saul's life and upgraded from a cave to a castle right there in that moment. And no one would blame him. And my hunch is you've got people in your life when you feel like someone's after you and all you want is revenge, they're not the most helpful people in the world because all they're doing is cheering you on towards revenge. David had a whole guy's behind him going, do it, do it, do it. David has this moment where he could have ended it all. But he got something. He understood something in that cave. He remembered something that Saul had forgotten. That regardless of who's king, there is always a greater authority to submit to. There's a greater authority to submit to, one who actually establishes king's and rulers, one who places us under authority, who places you under authority, even if that authority is crazy, mad, unhealthy, toxic, whatever it may be. David remember that he actually submitted to one who says vengeance is mine, not yours. He submitted to one whose justice and mercy are far greater than ours and whose scales are far different than ours. David remembered what Saul forgot, that regardless of who wears the crown, there is one who still reigns in perfect power. And David in that moment, as tempted as he was to end it all, to take revenge, just left a little note. I could have, I wanted to, but I didn't. I submit to a greater authority who places me under authority, your authority, King Saul. And he spared Saul's life right there in that moment. 1 Samuel 24, verse 5. Afterwards, David was conscious stricken. He realized what he had done. Even that taunt was too much for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. God has placed him in power for a purpose, one that I may not like, one that I may not agree with, but he's still the person God has put authority in my life. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave, totally unaware of all that had transpired, and went on his way. Now, this wouldn't be the last cave that David would hide in. In fact, it wouldn't even be the last chance that David had to kill Saul. There are several more accounts where David is able to sneak up behind him and let him know, I could have ended your life, but I didn't, but I won't. 
In fact, what we find is that Saul's life doesn't end until he takes his own life all the way at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. That, in fact, it wasn't David who ultimately killed Saul. Saul took his own life, realizing all of the mess that he had made of it, how he had forsaken and forgotten God. And roughly about a third of the written words we have about the life of David, we find him in a cave on the run, wondering the whole time, is God for me? And if so, why does it feel like life is so against me? And maybe, maybe for you, as you think about this often overlooked aspect of David's life, where his story actually began, maybe you can relate. Maybe you have today found yourself in your own cave, and you're asking the same question. How can God be for me if life feels so against me? Or maybe you've been in a cave in the past, and you know what that feels like. Whether you got in that cave through your own choices, actions, decisions, or whether just circumstantially, things beyond your control, you find yourself in a cave today. All of us have or will serve time in a cave. Divorce can be a cave. Infertility can be a cave. The loss of someone you love can be a cave. A diagnosis you weren't expecting can be a cave. The loss of a job can be a cave. The end of a relationship can be a cave. Exhaustion and depletion can be a cave. I remember a cave I found myself in not too long ago. A couple years ago, in fact. We'd been pastoring this church for a while, been trusting God and doing everything we could do that God led us to do as best we could. And I got to the point where I was so exhausted and defeated and depleted. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't remembering that God cares more about who I am than what I do. I had just gotten caught up in the work of leading a church. And I remember the moment where I realized I was in a cave is when I was sitting down to write a sermon and I was staring at my laptop to write notes and an hour passed and I had no idea what had happened. I just stared at my screen for an hour. No motivation to write. I mean, I love you all, but I couldn't muster up anything for you in that moment. <laughs> there was nothing there. The well was dry. I was exhausted, defeated, depleted from doing church work. It was a cave. I spent a couple months in that cave. Maybe you spent some time in a cave. And it can feel for you, if you're in one, especially if you're in one right now, that this is all there is. That this is your new permanent address. They might as well start forwarding your mail here. It can feel overwhelming. It can feel like the end. But what we see from David's story and what you're going to see over the next couple weeks is something very important. This wasn't the end of his story. It was just the beginning. And that you and I should never ever confuse a cave with the grave. A cave is not the grave. I know it's dark. I know it feels lonely. I know you can't find your way out. It is not 
the end. Don't ever, ever confuse a cave that God may even have you in for reasons you may not ever understand with a grave. It is not the end of your story. In fact, as we see in the life of David, God does some of his best work in the cave. He does some of his most gut-wrenching, soul-level, transformational work in the cave. Doesn't always feel great. Isn't always like, thanks God, great lesson learned. But God does some of his best work in the cave. And I know for those of us who are in it, all you may want to do is get out of it by any means necessary, but I would implore you to get as much out of it as you can while you're there because God seems to always have something for us in the cave. Caves form character that just crowns never can. Caves form character. Something was happening in David those eight years on the run. God was forming character in him, in the lowlands, in the caves, that a crown would never, ever form. Crowns only reveal what's already there. The cave is where that character is formed, where transformation most happens. It is as though God has a cave curriculum. Lessons that can only be learned in some of the hardest and the darkest and the loneliest seasons of our life. Christian writers call it the dark night of the soul. That place where all you're left with is God. And he speaks, he does, and he moves And he transforms us in ways that we can't even see or recognize until we're actually out of the cave. And what's so interesting about the life of David is that those years he spent in the cave running for his life, wondering where God is at, actually have given us some of the most beautiful and passionate and honest prayers and psalms in the Bible. You know, the book of Psalms is this collection of beautiful, honest, open prayers to God, many of them written by David, several of them written in the caves. And in fact, I want to read to you what David wrote from the cave. And for those of us who find ourselves in a cave today, who are maybe facing cave curriculum for the first time ever, for the first time in a long time, who are wondering where God is at when life is so hard, maybe this could be your prayer today from the lowlands, from the cave. You could cry out like David did in Psalm 57 when he said this. He said, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, God, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Think about the context that we just read about, the fear that flooded his heart. He's saying, God, I will rest in you, even in the cave. I will look for you. I will rest in you. I'll find my refuge in you. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. Remember, David had several moments where he could have vindicated himself. He could have ended it all with Saul, but he remembered that there is an authority. There is a throne greater than any crown or kingdom of this world. He said, God, that's in your hands. 
That's for you to settle. That's for you to take care of. And then he says this truth about God to those of us who are in the cave. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. Listen, if you are in a cave, if you're in a hard season or you have been or you know someone who is and you're wondering where God is at in the midst of it all and you're wondering how long it's going to be, I just want to remind you of this truth that David just said far better than I ever could. But the simple truth is this. If you, if you are still here, if you're still here, God is still near. In other words, if you still have breath in your lungs, if you still have tears that you can form, if all you can say is, have mercy on me, God, have mercy, you need to know God is near, closer than you can even see, closer than you can even know. He has not left you, so don't leave him. He's not forgotten about you, so don't you forget about him. He hasn't turned his back on you. So don't turn your back on him. Even if you find yourself in a cave today, can you rest and know that God is here and he is near? And the fact that you're still here is evidence that he's near, that he loves you, and he will see you through. And so I was thinking about homework and how do you, how do you apply homework to this you know, unexpected chapter in the life of David. What do we do together this week to practice what we saw in the life of David today? And I had this thought, and this is our homework, and it's something that all of us can do. No matter where you're at with God, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, all of us can do this. First is this. Uh, if you're not in a cave right now, you've heard this message and maybe you have it in the past or your friends are, but you're not in a cave. You're not in that season. Do you know what your homework is this week? Thank God. That's it. Thank you, God, for this season. Thank you, God, for these blessings. Don't let gratitude die in your heart because that's when jealousy begins and you begin to look out for what everyone else has. If you're not in a cave, do you know what your homework is this week? Thank God. And for those of us who find ourselves in a cave today, you're in a difficult season, a dark season, you're in the lowlands. Do you know what your homework is this week? Thank God. Would you have the courage to say, thank you, God? I wouldn't have chosen this. Not the story I would have written. If I was the life of David, it just would have all been up and to the right for me. That's what I would have chosen. But God, you have me here for a reason. However it is that I got here, I know that you're near. And so whatever your cave curriculum is for me, thank you, God. Teach me, transform me, make me more into who you created me to be. Form in me the character that only a cave like this can create. So that's our homework. You're not in a cave, thank God. You're in a cave, thank God. That's pretty, we can all do that, right? So what I'd love to do is actually move us into a time of thanking God, of saying God, thank you for all of who you are, of practicing gratitude so that it doesn't die in our heart. It's part of our practice that we do here every week as we 
say thanks to God, we give back to him, we worship him, and we name and claim him as the one who is actually on the throne. No matter what sort of kings or queens may be in our life, the authorities over us, a bad boss, parents, whatever it is, we say there's authority greater still, and that is you, God. And so we say, God, we want to give back to you. We want to trust you. We want to bless you, God, for the ways that you've blessed us. We want gratitude to grow, not die, in our hearts. And we want to mark this moment to say that we trust you. You are the king of our hearts. So I want to pray for us as we prepare to give. There's several different ways you can give. We talk about this all the time. You can do it in person, as we're about to do in a moment. You can do it online, which is how Gene and I do it. Or you can text in to give. It doesn't really matter how you do it, but that you have an opportunity to say thanks to God. That's what I want to provide you with today. And I'd love to pray. So if you would open your hands and open your heart to God as I close this time in prayer. And God, I know I am so aware, God, that it's so easy to talk about a cave. It's so much harder to live in one. And so, God, my heart is tender. Not as tender as yours, but tender. For every one of your sons and daughters who finds himself in a cave and they're wondering where you're at, God, I pray today that this story would be an encouragement to them that you are near, that you haven't forgotten them. In fact, God, you may actually have something for them in the cave that they couldn't get anywhere else in their life. And so, God, I pray, I pray that we would get all that you've got for us, that we would receive all that you have for us, God, because you are good. You are a good king. You're a good father. And your desire is to grow us into fully all of who you created us to be. And so, God, for regardless of whatever the circumstances are around us, we choose to say thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for it all. It's in your name that we pray and that we give and that we sing. Amen.